Welcome to the podcast for Green Hill Church. You can find out more information about Green Hill Church and how to take your next step with Jesus online at greenhillchurch.com. Well, amen. If you've got your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. As we journey through Advent, this Advent season, let me, let me just remind you that the word Advent, it means arrival. This Advent season, it's this understanding, this expectation of the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, the Messiah. See, when Jesus arrived, the arrival of Jesus, it flips the script, if you will, of our understanding of what love really means. See, when he arrived in the manger, there was nothing less than the arrival of a new kingdom that was inaugurated. It was a sense in which um, what was known as the good news and this foretelling of it, this understanding that rescue was coming, rescue was coming, all of a sudden rescue was here. The Savior, Jesus the Christ, had come. And I love the scripture where Paul says in Philippians that God did not consider equality, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather made himself nothing. He, he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. In other words, he got up off the throne of heaven and he came to earth. And we lit this morning this candle that represents the, the advent of love and the fact that love came in a way that we could never imagine, we can't even put into words other than the f- simple fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love. And this is what our Savior has done for us. In humility, he takes on the form of a servant. He comes in the form of human flesh, stepping down from his throne, arriving here on earth as king of kings, yet in the form of a baby, a humble servant. He would live his life demonstrating this humility and this servanthood by loving the unlovable by touching the untouchable, by healing the unhealable, and by dying for sinners on the cross. But the cross would not hold him down. Because he's king of kings, because he's lord of lords, because he rules over all things, the very last enemy, death, was defeated by him. And three days after his crucifixion, he rose from the dead. This is love that Christ died for you. You see, this is the gospel. The gospel says that if you as a sinner would turn and trust in Jesus Christ, your Savior, who died as your substitute, then by resting and trusting in him, by grace, you would be saved. And as we've studied through the book of Galatians, Paul is arguing, he is commending, he is putting forth this gospel that says, it is not by works, it is not by anything that you have done, but by grace and grace alone, because of the love of Jesus Christ, because of the advent, because of the arrival of this servant, the suffering servant has come for you. And the gospel says that you have been rescued from sin and death, and that you have been declared not guilty, and that you've been adopted into the family of God, and that the Holy Spirit in this comes and dwells within you and regenerates you and breathes life into you. And in that, as we looked last week, you bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. 
against such things. There is no law. And so Paul has been teaching us this. We've been seeing this. We're celebrating this in this Advent season. And now this morning we come to Galatians chapter 6 and what we find is radical. It's this, that the gospel changes our relationships. The gospel changes our relationships. Why? Because what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do as a suffering servant? What did Jesus do as one who humbly comes and walks this earth? He engages with people in a way that the world had never seen before. And this is what he's called us to do as Christians. This is what he's called us to do as his church. You see, as we become changed by God, as our heart and our life grow to become like his heart and his life, then all of a sudden we begin to see people as Jesus sees people and we begin to act as Jesus acts when he interacts with people and it changes our relationships with people. We live with compassion. We live with grace. We live with mercy. We live with love. The interaction that Jesus had with people was different, and so should ours be as well. So that leads us to what we find in Galatians chapter 6 this morning. And what I want to do, we're going to back into chapter 5. And so this morning, we're going to read beginning of verse 25 of chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 5. So if you've got your word, let's read it together. It says this. This is the word of the Lord. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to stop here, and we'll continue on next week for the rest of the chapter. But as we think through this text, I want to show us three truths that I believe how the gospel changes our relationships. The first one is this, the gospel changes the way that you see yourself. The gospel changes the way that you see yourself. Notice back in verse 25 of chapter 5, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now what he's saying is that if the gospel has indeed gotten inside of you, then you do indeed live by the Spirit. So if you're a Christian here, understand this, that there's not some second coming of the Spirit that's coming for you, that when you gave your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. You are alive because of the Spirit. We've looked at this in all of chapter 5. This is why Paul says, so walk by the Spirit. And when you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. 
This is why he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and on and on he goes. It's not something that you produce. It's the Spirit alive regenerating you inside of you that produces it. And so now in verse 25, he says, so if we live by the Spirit, which we do, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, we can't just say, hey, we've got the Spirit and go live for ourselves. He's saying, no, find yourself walking in submission to the Holy Spirit that's alive in you. Be sensitive to his leading. Follow his guiding. Walk in obedience to what he's doing in your life. This is what it means to walk by the Spirit, to stay in step with the Spirit, to be changed by the gospel. So now in verse 26, notice what he says. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Now, this seems really random. The fruit of the Spirit, listen, walk by the Spirit, listen. And they say, hey, by the way, don't become conceited. This seems a bit odd, doesn't it? But here is what I believe that he is doing. Before Paul deals with Christians' relationship with others, he has to deal with a Christian's relationship with himself. And here's why. How you see yourself directly impacts how you relate to others. If you don't see yourself as God sees you, if you don't see yourself through the lens of the gospel, there's no way that you can live out chapter 6, 1 through 5. And the way that he addresses this is through this word, this idea of conceit. He says, do not become conceited. This word conceit, It means that you have an opinion of yourself that is either vain, too high, empty, too low, or false. It's this idea that you see yourself falsely. You don't see yourself clearly. You don't see yourself as what is true, what is right. Another word for this, another phrase, is this this idea of empty of honor. When someone is conceited, it is someone who is empty of honor. And what happens when you're empty of honor is this conceited view of yourself drives you to an insecurity and an understanding that you don't have this honor, and so you go searching for this honor, and here's how you do it. You do it through comparison. You look for others that are less than you, and you see them, and you see, aha, I am valuable because I'm better than this person. And we find ourselves in this constant game of comparison. We see ourselves less than us, and it fills up our tank. It puffs us up, but it leaves us insecure because we will always find people better than us. And this is this false view that we see ourselves sometimes. It's this idea of conceitedness. But notice he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say, let us not become conceited. He goes on and he gives two modifiers to this, provoking one another and envying one another. And here's a powerful truth that you need to understand. If you walk in this manner of conceit, you will do one of two things. You will either provoke people or you will envy people. As you see yourself better than, superior than, you will look down on them, provoking them. If you see yourself as empty, looking up and say, everyone's so much better than me. I wish this. I wish that about myself. You will envy those people, and you will not be able to live out the gospel in relationship with others because you are self-absorbed. Your eyes are on yourself. 
See, to, prov- to provoke literally means to challenge someone to a contest. It's this idea that you're proving your superiority to others. That you are better, that you can do it better, that you know more, that you have more. It's you filling your need for honor by dominating those around you. Men in the room that find yourself provoking others, it's a sense in which you're trying to find fulfillment. The gospel says, no, you need to view yourself as Christ sees you. Those in the room who look at yourself and you have no self-esteem, no self-worth, no self-value, you're looking at everyone else saying, why can't I be like that? You need to understand that the gospel says something different about you. You see, the gospel perspective fueled by walking by the Spirit changes the way that we see ourselves. And this is why he ties together verse 25 and verse 26, that you can't see yourself correctly unless you're walking by the Spirit who says something about you. And this is what changes the way that you see yourself. Listen, outside of Christ, outside of relationship with him, outside of a, of a grounding of the Holy Spirit, there is no baseline of truth as to who you are. It's all subjective. It's all feelings. It's all experience-based. It's all about a comparison. It really is. Well, I've got more than them, so I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Or I've got less than them, so I've got to work harder to be better. And we find ourselves in this constant comparison game of the need to find ourselves better. But in Christ Jesus, the gospel tells us a different story of who we are. The gospel tells us that we are someone, that we are a child of God, that we are a son, a daughter, that we are heirs to the king, that we have value, that we have worth. You see, the gospel frees us from needing to be superior and frees us from the lie of inferiority. Here's how it does it. The Holy Spirit reveals within us our sinfulness. And when we see our sinfulness and who we are as sinners, we understand that we're not superior to anyone, that we are all indeed sinners. It doesn't matter who you are. You are a sinner in need of a Savior saved by grace. But at the same time, it frees us from the lie of inferiority. How? By telling us that you are now a son or a daughter of the king, that you are a joint heir with Christ. And the scripture says that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness to walk in this. So we can have both humility and boldness and confidence together. Not better than and not less than anyone else, but simply just as a child of the king. And this is what the gospel says about us. Listen, the gospel shifts us from seeing people as rivals to defeat to people to serve. John Stott said it this way. The correct attitude to other people is not, I'm better than you, and I'll prove it, nor you're better than I, and I resent it, but rather, you're a person of importance in your own right, because God made you in his own image, and Christ died for you, and it is my joy, and it is my privilege to come alongside you and to serve you. The gospel frees us to be this. And isn't it the picture of what Christ has done for us? Isn't it the picture of who Jesus was in his advent, in his arrival, in his 
coming. Listen, church, we have to see ourselves as God sees us. The gospel changes the way you see yourself. Number two is this. The gospel changes the way that you support sinners. The gospel changes the way that you support sinners. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, brothers, and he uses the word brothers to, to tie in, to help remind them, hey, I'm speaking to you as Christians. I'm speaking to the local church. I'm talking to you church people in Galatia, brothers, sisters in Christ. Listen, if anyone is caught in any transgression, and by the way, the way he writes it there is people will be caught in transgression because we're all sinners. You understand that? If anyone is caught in transgressions, you who are spiritual should what? Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So the gospel changes the way that you come alongside, that you support sinners. You see, the spirit-filled person who rightly sees himself not being superior to, not being less than to, but as a son or a daughter of the Most High King, saved by grace is able to see as Jesus sees through the lens of the gospel and is able to deal with someone who's caught in sin as Christ would deal with someone caught in sin. See, what, what did Jesus do when he was on this earth? He's born in a manger and he grows up and he begins his ministry. He walks and encounters and deals with broken people, sinners constantly. Isn't that what we do every single day of our life? We rub shoulders with sinners, don't we? And we ourselves are as well. You see, point one matters for point two, and here's why. If we become conceited and we have an empty view of ourselves and an honor, empty of honor, and we're constantly comparing, when we see the sinner, rather than doing what the scripture says, we will find ourselves saying, thank goodness I'm not like that. We will find ourselves condemning sinners in our hearts. We will find ourselves laughing at sinners and their consequence. We will find ourselves applauding that we aren't like them and that we are better than them, and we will find ourselves gossiping over their actions. Nowhere in Scripture do we say that this is how we respond to sinners. Paul says, no, indeed, you come alongside them and you restore them. And the only way that we can do that is if our hearts are right and our hearts are right when we see ourselves through the lens of the gospel and then we see as Jesus sees. And so what does he say? He says, you should restore him. This word restoration, this idea of restoring, it's the same word that was used to set a broken bone, to put it in order, to set right, put someone back on the right path. When I was in college, I was at a basketball game and a guy went up for a shot and he landed and he broke his leg. It snapped in half. It was unbelievably horrific. And immediately everyone circles around him and everyone gets on the phone and they're calling the hospital. There was a doctor there on the scene and he called the emergency room and said, who's the doctor on call? We've got someone coming. And they put him in an ambulance and they send him. Why? Because his bone was crooked. 
And it had to have surgery. It had to be put right. It had to be aligned. And this is the word that's being used here. He says, restore. There's brokenness. There's a person who's gone astray. And you as the church, you need to come alongside that person. And you need to restore them. You need to put them back in the right direction, aligned with walking by the Spirit. It's this idea of restoration. Notice what he says. He says, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should be the ones who restore. Now, when we read that and you're hearing this, you're like, well, I'm not spiritual. I'm not, I'm not elite level, so I don't really have to listen to this. I don't have to walk in this. Well, I would, I would say Paul is not talking about the, the, the elite special forces of the church when he says this. He's not talking about this elite status of Christians that are the ones to come alongside. He just simply says, those of you who are spiritual, and what he means by this is simply go back to chapter 5. Those of you who are walking by the Spirit. Those of you who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness self-control. These are the attributes. These are the things in the people that need to be the ones to come alongside. Why? Because if we don't have those things, we'll have judgmentalness. We'll have arrogance. We'll have condemnation. We'll have anger. We'll have many other things that won't restore somebody. And so it's you who are spiritual are the ones who do this. And how do you do it? He says it. He says you restore him in a spirit of gentleness. One of the fruit of the spirit. You know that Jesus, when he approached sinners, he always did it gently. He never came harsh at them. You know what he reserved the harsh language for? You know who he reserved that for? The religious the religious, and here's why, because they thought that they were superior, because they were conceited. But the broken sinner, he comes alongside gently, and gentleness by no means is weakness, and the reason, don't miss this, the reason he can come alongside the sinner gently is because he went to a rugged cross and was crucified. That wasn't gentle. But because he did that, he can be gentle with you. And can I just say to you in this room this morning, if some of you are walking in a manner where you're walking in sin, that you find yourself caught in transgression, if you will, can I just please remind you that Jesus wants to deal gently with you? He wants to show you his kindness. The scripture says it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. You don't have to cower before God Almighty because his grace is sufficient. And this is what he's called us as the church to be, to come along gently alongside people who are broken, who are suffering in their sin, who are walking in it, and just gently come alongside them in truth and in love and in grace. Say, let me walk with, let me, let me remind you, you are going astray. Let's get set right. Let's get set right. You notice what he says. He says, you do this in gentleness, keeping watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, we could interpret this in a few different ways. We could look at this and say, as you come alongside someone who's caught in sin, walking in this transgression, be careful that you too don't be 
caught up in that same transgression. But I think what Paul's talking about in this text within the context is this. Be careful that when you come alongside a sinner that you don't be tempted to think that you're better than that person. Recognize that you too are a sinner. Recognize that you too are saved by grace. This, this is a, a statement that I've, I've said often when I hear a story of failure. It, it's a sobering reminder that we're all one step away from stupid. Like we, like we don't mock and laugh at someone's fall and say, serves them right. See, I knew they were a fake or a fraud. We, we humble ourselves and say, goodness, Lord, protect me. I'm, I'm just one step away from the same thing. So we walk in humility in this, gently coming alongside people to serve them and to restore them. This is how we deal with sinners. Church, this has significant implication for the church, for the body. Can I just remind you that when you come to Green Hill Church and you say that I want to be a member of Green Hill Church, it's not a country club that we're supposed to do all this for you. It's simply the body of Christ of you saying and us saying together, listen, if I begin to stray and I begin to walk in a manner that is a transgression against the Lord, would you please in gentleness come and grab me and say, listen, you're walking astray. This is what it means to be the body of Christ to care for one another in such a manner. So the gospel changes the way that we see ourselves. It changes the way that we support sinners. And number three is this, the gospel changes the way you serve people. The gospel changes the way you serve people. If you follow the flow of the text, it's almost as if Paul was teaching them to care for one another in their sin. And then he said, well, let me just say it like this in verse two, bear one another's burdens. Listen, the burden of sin is a burden. And there's many people, and maybe even some in this room, you are walking with the burden of guilt. You don't need to walk in that alone. First, Christ can save you. He can free you from that guilt. But you need to come alongside some other believers, and they can walk with you coming back to restoration. You bear one another's burdens that way. But here we see this statement, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ you see, listen, the gospel moves you to serve others by bearing their burdens. And this statement, when he says, bear one another's burdens, this is not a suggestion to consider, but rather a command that we must follow. Bear one another's burdens. Here's what I love about this verse. It assumes that people have burdens. Doesn't it? We all have burdens. The word burden, it means heavy weight. The phrase here, bearing one another's burdens, the burden that is a heavy weight is a weight that one must carry for a long distance. And the truth of the matter is some of you are carrying some heavy burdens. This heavy burden is 35 pounds. You didn't choose your burden. You got your burden. And you find yourself carrying your burden. And it's heavy. Now, as we read this scripture, if you remember when we read it, we came to verse 5. And in verse 5, if you look down, it says this, For each will have to bear his own load. 
And if you look at verse 4, he's saying you can't count on your neighbor. Like you need, to, you need to worry about this yourself. He says, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And then he says, hey, everyone has to bear his own load. And when you read this, you think, well, this is contradictory to verse 2. In verse 2, he's saying bear your burdens. In verse 5, he's saying everyone's got to carry his own load. Well, let me solve the conflict for you. In verse 5, the word load literally means everyone has their own pack. It's, it's literally the word to define the pack that a soldier would carry. Everyone has their own load that they have to carry. Thankfully, my load is only 10 pounds. Praise the Lord for it. But we all have a load that we must carry. And here's what he's saying in this. Be responsible to carry the load that God has given you. In other words, when he says in verse 4, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. He's saying this, in the end of time, when you stand before the judgment seat of God, only you can carry your pack. Only you are responsible for what you did with the load that God gave you to carry. Let me just speak to dads in the room. You have a load to carry called responsibility as being a father to your children. Be faithful. Carry the load well. Husbands, love your wife as Christ has called you to love the church. Christian, walk by the Spirit. Christian, bear the burdens of one another. Christian, come alongside the sinner and restore him gently. Walk by the Spirit. Carry the load of the work that God has given you with all work. Work as if you're working unto the Lord for his glory, for his name. There will come a day when you are held accountable for what God has given you. And how did you carry that load? Were you faithful? Were you responsible? This is what 4 and 5 says. But verse 2, it's a different load. It's a burden. It's a different word. It's a weight that you can't carry alone. Sure, you can carry it for a little while, but it will weigh you down. And Satan will begin to use it in your life to where you are no longer faithful with the load that he's given you. And so he says, bear one another's burdens. Did you know that Jesus is the ultimate burden bearer? Psalm chapter 55, verse 22, it says, cast your burden upon the Lord. And he will what? Anybody know? He will sustain you. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. And you will find, ready for it? You will find rest for your souls. This is Jesus the ultimate burden bearer. But here's the power and the beauty of what this text says. Jesus created the church to be the tangible expression and demonstration of what it means for him to be the burden bearer. He can, he's the only one who can carry the weight and the burden of your sin and everything that you're carrying. But he has created and given us the church to help bear the burdens of one another. Do you see it? 
when the gospel gets inside of us, all of a sudden the gospel gets inside the church. And when it gets inside the church, all of a sudden people who are carrying heavy weight, heavy burdens will have someone come alongside them and say, I got you. I'm going to carry it with you. You're not meant to carry this alone. You can do it. And I'm with you the whole way. And he says, you will fulfill the law of Christ. You know what the law of Christ is? Love God and love people. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. You know what it says? For the whole law is filled in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How do you demonstrate love for your neighbor? You bear their burden. And this is a command to follow, not a suggestion to consider. Well, you guys failed the test just like the first service. I'm up here bearing this burden, and I'm like, the command says you come in. I, I don't know. It was getting heavy. So I'm going to take this off so I can finish without passing out. Verse 3. It says in verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And here it is. He goes back to conceit. And here's why. Because pride and conceit tells us that we're above stooping low to carry the burdens of someone else. It says, well, that's, that's, I'm, a, I'm above that. Somebody else will take care of that. But pride and conceit also, don't miss this, tells you the lie, the myth of self-sufficiency. The lie of self-sufficiency says this. I can do this. I've got this. I don't want to be a burden to someone else. It would show myself as weak to have someone come and help me. No, it shows pride. See, bravery says, I can't do this alone. Bravery says, I need God's design of the church to come alongside me, to help me bear the burden that I'm carrying. See, church, it's not only okay to let people help carry your burden. God commanded that people are to help carry your burden. Several years ago, our kids were two and three. We had some medical, um, I, I guess I would call it emergencies in our family. We were blindsided by this and for years I had attended church. I was even working at a church, but it was through this new burden that we were now carrying that we got to experience the church. When you show up to the hospital in the parking garage, and there's family, not blood family, but church family, they're meeting you in the garage and say, put your kids in my car. We got them. You guys go. When people show up at your house and say, give me your dirty laundry. I know you can't handle it right now. Let us carry that load for you. When your mailbox gets flooded with prayer grams, handwritten prayers of people praying for your family, you know you're not alone. It's burden bearing. It's the church being the church. 
This is God's design. And it's a demonstration, watch this, of the advent of love that came in Christ Jesus that has been poured out into our hearts. And now as we walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, it overflows out of us and it changes lives. It changes lives. This morning, I don't know what type of burden that you're carrying. But know this. You don't need to carry it alone. This is the church. This is what we're for. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves in ways that we can't even describe. God, we thank you that you are a God who loves so much that you took the biggest weight of them all, the weight of our sin and shame and the weight of death, and you put that weight upon Jesus on the cross, and he suffered and he died so that we can be set free. Thank you. God, we also know that you In your goodness, you created the church. And you designed us to not exist and to live in isolation or alone, but connected with one another so that we can help restore one another when we begin to drift and we can bear one another's burdens when we get overburdened. God, my prayer for this church for my life is that we would be a people saturated with your love as we walk by the Spirit so that people can be free and know that they have people carrying their burdens with them. And God, may it be a demonstration to our world around us the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. So God, now as we turn to this time of invitation, would you just set us free? Would you just allow us to respond in a manner that is honoring to you and helpful to one another. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in a minute, we're going to respond in invitation. And here's my invitation to you. Pastor Casey, myself, are down front. We've got some prayer encouragers, life group leaders. Just be available. I think one of the most powerful ways that we can bear one another's burdens is to just pray for one another. To take it before the great burden bearer, first and foremost. So during this invitation, if there's a burden that you're carrying, would you be willing to just let go and just come and say, I'm carrying this, would you just pray over me? You're not alone. You're not alone. You respond as the Lord leads this morning. Let's stand together. Let's sing. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Green Hill Church. For more information about Green Hill Church, go to greenhillchurch.com. Thanks for listening.